This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, business fans. And good morning, statistics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, and Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics. Some combination of the three of us and our other co-hosts, Cade Massey, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, replayed throughout the week. You can also listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And of course, just like last week where Adi and I were barraged in a good way with phone calls, this is a call-in show. So if you want to join the conversation and... Everyone knows there's tons to talk about in sports. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We get lots of great questions throughout the week. And I've actually been on a Twitter rant. Um, so at W Moneyball, lots to follow us on Twitter as well. So Shane... And Adi, how are you guys doing this morning? We're Excellent. Doing, how we're are doing, you doing really well. What actually is a, a, a Twitter rant? Oh, is we've got some great number? examples lately, if you'd like. Yeah. No, I no. Think sports I, well, what, what's well, your Twitter rant yeah, about? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, again, I've been a big... Tweeting once a week? Is that a rant? Yeah, it's about, okay, that's right. about for, the for level. For professors, right. that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I've just been a strong proponent that what we're seeing from LeBron James is really somewhat unprecedented. I do understand the argument that, you know, you know who's he playing? You know, he's playing an Indiana Pacers team, not an all-time great team. He beat the Toronto Raptors, despite them being the one seed. No one really was believing much about him. He just beat the Boston Celtics, although, you know, winning Game 7 in Boston is non-trivial and all of that. I think I've just been a fan of what LeBron's been doing, and I think it's just amazing also to get to the finals eight straight years. And he's played every single game of the year, including every minute in the last game. So that's what I've been tweeting about. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think what he's done is relatively unprecedented. I mean, the supporting cast that he's sort of dragged along the way to the finals in the last few years, I, I mean, I, I think what he's doing, in my mind, he's the greatest basketball player that's ever played. I mean, again, well, I, I perhaps is. have come to basketball like a little bit later, so I wasn't able to at least process what Michael Jordan was doing as much during his heyday, but... I don't, I don't think. Well, I, I think what LeBron's doing well, is Well, let me tell you two stats that I've seen recently. So there's no question this is the worst Cavs team he's ever been on. So they've looked at win shares of mm-hmm. other players yep. on the team. And actually, his total combined win shares of his complementary unit and players is actually negative. So let's just start with that. So he's actually playing with a below-average set of players from a win shares perspective. The second thing I saw relate to the greatest of all time. I was convinced of that, except when I saw a recent statistic, matter of fact, this morning, that had him at age 33 compared to Michael Jordan at age 33 in comparison of win shares. So LeBron by far led the league this year with 14, but Michael Jordan at the same age had 18. Now, again, we can make a debate about which of the two of them is a greater player. There's no question Jordan played with a much stronger supporting cast. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, other future Hall of Famers, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, you know, lots of Horace Grant, lot not a Hall of Famer, but lots of great players. LeBron, I mean, yeah, he's played with D. Wade. That didn't hurt. I was going to say, I've, he that, played, he's probably played with one or two Hall of Famers. Well, if you want to count Shaq at the end yeah. of it, although that wasn't the, the Shaq of the Hall of Fame Shaq, 
D. Wade certainly was yeah. a Hall of Famer. You, we can make an argument about Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh might be a marginal Hall of Famer as well. You, Kyrie Irving may turn out to be a Hall of Famer. So either way. Okay, so, so we saw the, the Cavs go are going to the finals. We, yep. we watched that series. There were three things that happened that were interesting to me. I'll take your, ask right, your let's questions. Let's do it one about. at a time. So the first thing, of course, was was the – I mean, three things I'm trying to compare with each other to decide. First is the, the Celtics didn't play that well in the last game. That's, that seems to always happen when you lose. I mean, we saw that with the, with the Rockets. They played horribly, certainly in the last third of the game. So that's a piece. Braun seemed to play extremely well at, at the end. And then the third piece is, place, uh, piece is the rest of, of Cavaliers' teammates. What do you think allowed them to win? Which of those three? Yeah, was, so, uh, are all three to have to work together in order for this to happen? Yeah, so I'll have an opinion, but I'd, I'd love to hear Shane's opinion as well. What you saw with the Celtics versus, and also the Rockets too, when Harden came up small, the thing a great player does for you, and you even saw this, I'll even give the greatest compliment to Michael Jordan. At the end of the game, Michael Jordan had the ball. I didn't say he shot. He had the ball on every play. And so they're going to get quality shots on every play. And that was the difference between the Celtics at the end of the game and the Cavs at the end of the game. Was the Cavs, the Celtics, sorry, didn't, you didn't know who the ball was going to. You didn't know who was going to take the shot. And you could say, well, that's great for the off. No, you need a guy that can beat someone off the dribble, that can either score or set up a shot for someone else. And I hate to put it this way, you know he can do it every time. And so it's just, does the guy make the shot? Yep. That was the difference to me. You had a player to go to. If Kyrie Irving was on the Celtics... That series is totally different. Yeah. There, I mean, he's proven he's a player that you can give the ball to the last 10 possessions of the game. The Celtics didn't have it. The Cavs did. That, for me, is the difference. I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, I just to kind of follow up on your sort of uh, Ewing theory, too, is that that player cannot be a center. Cannot be a center. And I would argue, and I don't think this is that disputed, to me, the most consistent best player on the Celtics was Al Horford. I thought he played—I mean, I'm not saying that—well, maybe Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum. So we could argue, could Tatum have had the ball? I don't know that he has the ball-handling mm-hmm. skills to yeah. get the ball from the— So are you claiming, then, that of the three, LeBron's play is the is the dominant factor, not the Celtics' collapse, and not the performance of the Cavaliers, the rest of the team? If what you mean is for the totality of the yeah, series, say, yes, yeah. LeBron's play, not so much— the bad play of the Celtics. Yes. Now, I want to ask going forward. Okay, so we have the series, and at this point, the but odds... Let me just give you a little bit of odds here. Yeah. Okay. Please do. I, are... I will. So, well, first of all, Adi, you guys can do the calculation for me. The Cavalier, the, sorry, the Warriors in Game 1 are favored by 12.5. So for our fans out there, can you give them a sense of the win probability of that? So well, what does 12.5 convert to in terms of a win probability for the Warriors? It's at least a standard deviation. I'm not exactly sure what the standard deviation is in basketball. But it's approximately one standard deviation, which would mean that they're about 16%, uh, roughly, just to throw that out, to win. To what percent? That seems really small, but 16% chances the Cavaliers win. Oh, yeah, the Cavaliers win, right. So we're talking about, by the way, that's consistent with the odds, by the way, of, well, anybody, maybe you guys looked at it, because our producer Matt Datz gave us to us. What are the odds that, what are the, if you want about $100, how much do you win for the Cavaliers winning in four? Cavaliers go win, 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 win. Oh, they win in four, probably 
a couple thousand bucks. <laughs> 12,000 to one. 12,000. 12, 12, so it's a th- 100 yeah, yeah. wins you 12,000, yeah. yeah. which basically corresponds to somewhere around an 85 to 90% win percentage for the Warriors in each game. Yeah. yeah. In other words, if you just map out, you know, point one, well, do point one to the fourth, right? That's about yeah. 10,000. But it's so probably, well, that it's probably, well, that's 12,000. It's 12,000 to, to 100. So that's true. That's so only 100. It's only 1,200. It's, not, it's, it not, really, it should be, it should be a lot less. Well, lot the problem more. is, is that the, the Warriors are heavily favored at home, but I would guess the Cavaliers in home are not, it's not, they're not 90% or they're probably more like a uh, 40% or 50% chance to win at home. That's fair too. So that's where that comes from. I don't think it's, but the thing is, is, is that what do you, th- I mean, here's the question. There's the odds and then there's what we think. Yeah. So, I think, I think the, I think the Warriors win the series. Um, I'm, I'm trying to decide if I think they're going to win in five or going to win in six. I think it's somewhere. But you in- don't think that it's. I mean, by that standard, you don't think it's going to be a particularly competitive series. Well, let me ask you. Just, uh, let, this has got to be the well, Cavaliers' just, worst team. No, well, let's just do a simple. Uh, here's the simplest thing I can think of to line. And again, if our listeners want to call in and give their opinion on Warriors Cavs, that would be great. Uh, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Again, this is Wharton Moneyball, and this is Eric Brado, and I'm here this morning with my co-host uh, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Um, <laughs> are the Cavaliers better than last year's team? No, 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 definitely not better, right? Are the Warriors better? No, they're not better, but I'm. It's not. I'm they're not, not much worse. I don't know that they're. Well, much. I think I think Curry's injury. With and Curry's injury, that, I, I would argue that with Curry's sort of injury and him not playing the way he usually does, I, I would. No, they're, they're worse. noticeably worse. They're worse, but they're worse. so so the Warriors won last year four games to one. By the way. You guys may remember the series. If uh, Kevin Durant doesn't hit a massive three at the end of one of the games, the Cavaliers win that game to bring it back to three two. And then the, I mean, that series was four one, yeah. but it was a little closer than that. Yeah. So that's why I'm going four one or four two. And on, uh, is Iguodala? What, what do we know his he's, status he's, for the series? He, unclear. He just got a second right. opinion so on also, his name. That's also something well, that your, makes all right, we all have worse. To, let's say we have to make point predictions. I right wish now. I had analytical tools at my disposal in, in any way. I don't. So. Well, here's the stats people look at. You know, the people look at offensive efficiency of the Cavalier, of the Warriors. The defense, even though... Yeah, but are say, we looking at the gen, the regular season? We know how no, much no, that no. means. No, are, no. are we looking at the they, playoffs? So, I mean, All right, so in the playoffs, the stat I just read this morning, the Cavaliers are giving up 107 points per 100 possessions, which makes them a very... That's better than they were in the regular season, which was at about 112 to 113, but it puts them as average. So in the postseason, the Cavaliers have been an average defensive team. To me, an average defensive team up against the Warriors... We'll well, lose. Well, yeah. Okay. No, but let's just, right. If you look but. at the, the scores of the games, they have a, had a tendency to get blown out in the games they lost. As if, okay, we've lost it. Let's just, let's just toss it. I mean, and so I may want to do some correction on that in, in the sense that they have the ability to really turn it on and be much and give up fewer points if they really needed to. Yeah. The other thing. So. What do you guys think? I mean, if you, I made my prediction, and Matt's writing it down, so we're keeping track here on Wharton Moneyball. You I'm are. Pre- I'm predicting the Warriors in. Let me. Five. Just, I'll say Warriors in five. That'll be my prediction. I will. Um, I will say Warriors in seven. I think it goes uh, Warriors in seven. Wow. Okay. Wow. Well, you know what? Yeah. Just for that would fun, be exciting. Just for fun, and because it seems like a decent bet anyway, I'll do Warriors in six. Okay. Let me just say the following: If the war, if it goes to seven, if it goes to seven. I'm not hedging my Warriors in five. I'm staying like the, with the, fir- the previous series. If Both the, went to seven. Right. If the Warriors, if it goes to game seven, I'm picking the Cavs. Interesting. Okay. All right. You're switching. 
based on based no, no, on, he's making a conditional. Yeah, okay. no, yeah, no, no, but no, 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 I, I understand. No, 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 no but Shane's making a, a valid point. Yeah, no. I think the Warriors are the stronger team. Therefore, why would I possibly pick against them if it goes to a seventh game? Because which will be in Golden State. It would be in California. Golden State. It, I'm going to believe in the greatness of LeBron. Yeah, he's won six straight game sevens, um, which is remarkable to do so. I, I'm if it goes to seven, I just don't see how the guys physically can hold up. I mean, it's unbelievable how much energy the guy's putting out there. And that's what the Warriors yeah. will do, by the way. They'll just throw different guys at him for the entire series. And just what you'll see is just, you know, even the greatness of LeBron, he can't carry this whole team against Golden State. That's at least my view. Guys, but, what other sports? Any other sports that are catching your eye? Well, there's a lot of baseball. We're moving into the, the, the midseason, I think. It's All right, so I want, to, I want to ask you guys two things. To me, we're seeing two of the greatest seasons so far, it's only a third of the way through in baseball history. I just wanted to get your opinion on this. So one, let's start on the pitching side, okay? So Justin Verlander, who just beat the Yankees the other day, has an ERA of 1.11. That's right. Um, which I think the record for Gibson is 1.12. I'm pretty sure it's somewhere around there. I, I won't hold my breath. But I'm not saying he's going to. But the part I wanted to ask, it was I, I'm glad to hear, I, when I heard that Shane was going to be here today, the guy's almost getting Pedro-like. There yeah. is one other pitcher that's at 1.8 right now. The next best pitcher is like a 2.1 or 2.2. He may. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's not unfathomable. He could end up the season with an ERA one greater than the next best pitcher, which uh, you've always pointed out yeah. is why that season of that Pedro's was, was probably season. the greatest season ever. Yeah. Greater than even Bob Gibson yeah, or anybody yeah. I mean, else. I mean, it had also the fact that it was right at the height of the, yeah, the, the performance It's, it's one of my favorite, uh, my favorite calculations I do with my students is the standard deviation, Z-score for, for ERAs across the across the not millennia, but the century. Right. And Pedro is the number one. He's about three. It's interesting how, how it's only about three, just a little over three standard deviations better than the field. Yeah. That. And that's the highest ever. Well, right. that's, that's actually pretty remarkable that, you know, of all the pitching seasons that they have. Yep. So what, well, let's, this is a good point for our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball. What would make a distribution, in this case, let's just make sure, let me make clear to all our listeners what the calculation Adi did. He took, for let's say not every pitcher season, you take their ERA, subtract the average ERA in the league, and then you divide by the standard deviation yep. of the ERAs, and that tells me how many standard deviations is a given individual's ERA away from the uh, league average. Right. So I use lo- local smoothers, so I don't want to be, and I, I didn't get bumped around with a little bit of that natural year-to-year variation, just to, sen- so you're to be saying, sensible. You're saying as opposed both to both the mean and the standard at, deviation. Both, I had a yeah. Okay. Exactly. So let me just just to our just to our listeners again. Let me say what Adi's talking about when he's talking about a local smoother. Year to year, there's a lot of variation in the ERA. So I might not want to... Let's take Pedro in 99, which Shane said. I could take Pedro's ERA in 99, subtract the average ERA in 99, divide by the standard deviation, how much variation there is around the mean in 99. But what Adi's saying is those bounce around a bunch, so why not take some sort of weighted average or smooth version of the average and the standard deviation before doing the standardization? This is very standard to do when things tend to bounce around a lot. Now... What would make a distribution less extreme than we would think? Because what you're telling me is, I'm making a number up. Let's say there's 10,000 baseball seasons of pitchers that have been done. We could actually do the calculation. It's probably greater than that. If we think about the number of pitchers on each, there's probably 300 pitchers a year, roughly, ten, you know, no, 150 pitchers a year. No, maybe it's about... Starters. All right, let's say it's somewhere around 10,000. We have 10,000 pitching seasons by starting pitchers yeah. in the last 60, 70 years of baseball. You might think... 
there would be one more than three standard deviations away in 10,000 pitcher seasons. What would make a distribution kind of less dispersed? We always talk about over-dispersion in statistics. What might make something less dispersed than we might think? Well, actually, I know the answer oh. in this context. It has to do with the nonlinearity of ERA, and it's and because the, the standardization is meant to, for a linear scale. In other words, the difference between two to three, let's say the mean was two, or just pick a value two, two to three is about the same worseness as, as two to one is good. That's not true. Yeah. So if you think about it in terms of probability of winning, it's, uh, it's not linear that way. So going from two to one is spectacularly harder than going from three to so two. So if I change things on you have the to log change the scale, scale, if I did a log scale... Not, or not sure that's the right transformation, but, but yes, you're on the right of, track. Some that might sort do of it. transformation. And I didn't do that. So yeah. <laughs> This is actually a really important point because, you know, it, we, this is a great point for our listeners here. We make linearity assumptions all the time in not only statistical models. And by the way, I think most people would agree that's why methods like machine learning and other methods that don't force linearity on things have gained popularity because you know, as, as you know, as a mathematician, everything's locally linear. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, near, you know. But at the end of the day, Taylor's e- theorem, right? But <laughs> ERA. ERA is not linear. Yeah. It's much no. harder to go from a 2 to a 1 than a 3 to a and 2. It, and it has a much bigger impact. In fact, one, I and some of my students have been working on rejiggering war to actually take this into account. And we actually just recently computed Verlander's war using our new method. And it's a bit higher than what the standard methods are using. Most most people have him at about 3. 3, 3. 3. Right. 3, 3, 3 we have him right about 4.7. Wow. Which is a that's huge number. Yeah, so that would standard. give him, just to be clear, that's through a third of the season. Yeah. All time. This is the all time greatest season, relatively speaking, for a pitcher. For a pitcher, <clears throat> right? To make, if he makes it, I don't think he will. Now but. the other Trout's at four point. Well, right, uh, right oh no, now. but hitters, but hitters, yeah. uh, hitters it, tend to have much more. So, mm-hmm. so Shane, they play every day. So Shane just reminded me of the other player I wanted to talk about yeah. is Mike Trout. So Mike Trout, at least after last night's game, had an OPS above one point one. Yeah. And so a lot of people are saying. Matter of fact, there was an article I think in five thirty eight that this is the greatest season that's maybe ever. Been by if, if you stretch it out, yeah. if you were to stretch it out, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, if you were to stretch it out and he gets like, <laughs> yeah. you know, fourteen WAR or something like that, then yeah, I, I think it is probably the greatest. Uh, I mean, I'd have to have a look at some of those Barry Bonds seasons, like near the end there, the, the ones when where he had he was the like, uh, on base percentage over five hundred and the so right I, where he was being intentionally walked a record number of times, right, right. et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, I'd have to look at that relative to those, but I mean, I I don't I haven't. Seen a war that high? Yeah, the thing is about the, the, one of the problems with war, particularly for for hitters, is that it has to do three things that we don't really know how to do well. One is to adjust for the position, and yeah. that's a thing that it, they they do kind of in, in an odd way. By that's a, that's a whole long conversation, but they do it in a way that's that's complicated. Think, let me ask you. Let me just take them one by one. Your points one by one. Do you think not just position? Do you think there'll ever be a case like, for example, one of the things we talk about a lot in marketing and quantitative marketing is you know customer lifetime value. So, for example. Um, let's imagine I want to decide, should I give Adi Weiner a discount? And I give Adi Weiner a discount, and it increases how much he spends now and in the future, so there's some change in customer lifetime value associated with it. The thing that people are now starting to realize is, but Adi Weiner has a wife, he has children, he has friends. So what's the social impact of that CLV? Do you think there'll ever be a time in sports where we say, listen, because Verlander, Mike Trout, is so great, we have to start attributing some of these other players' war to him, we have to start attributing, you know what, Verlander's the number one starter. If you remove him, someone else has to go into that slot, even if you just do that simple thing. Well, that's you, what war is all about, imagining... No, 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 but, no, but someone else in the number one slot? 
see, this is uh, the, the way I'm thinking about this is I'm thinking about sports where, let's say, you know, my kids, as you know, play a lot of squash. If the number one player in your team gets injured, your team is destroyed. It's not, you'd be better off putting a random person on the street in the number one slot and letting everyone else play that position that they would. But that's well, not what I, can happen because everyone hit, has to move up. As a hitter in a, in a lineup, yes, there are sort of synergistic effects where you're, you who's batting in front of you definitely affects the number of opportunities you have and, and, and stuff. I'm not sure about with pitchers. That well, sort of like number one versus yeah. number two designation matters. There's There's more independence among pitcher performances on a team. So, well, maybe, it is, are you talking about because the schedules don't line up? Because let's imagine my number one always yeah, faces. You're, 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 yeah, thinking, you're thinking I mean, more like squash how, here. how are we measuring pitchers? We're yeah. not measuring by, by wins, which is silly anyway. We're measuring them by, like, ERA and whip, and that's not tied to sort of what order it, it like like whether they we call that person the number 1 starter versus the number 2 starter let, let me jump in because there's it matters more what? on the hitting side because the the environment that you create affects the other players so when you have someone in there who walks all the time that affects the 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 environment, which means that the home run hitters who hit behind you are more likely to drive in runs because you're on base to be driven in, and so that's the synergistic effect effect that that you're talking about. That does is there, and most people don't use it or evaluate it or take take into account, and it's it's not impossible to do. But the but getting back to the problems with the the, the controversy, not really controversy, but the difficulty about war, is that it tries to put everything on the same scale. So war will try to do three things that I think it does that that are very hard to do. One is to adjust for position, right? and that's a very odd thing to try to think about, and they've been thinking about it a long time, and I'm very uncomfortable with the various different answers. The second thing is park factors. They employ park factors in league adjustments, but the park factors is the big one because it can actually vary quite substantially. And if you actually look at park factors from a year-to-year basis or even on a five-year average basis, they jump around so much, and it's something that... There's only like one or two that are consistently substantively different. So, so for example, the Angels are... um, They... the those though their park factors recently have been very low. I mean, in other words, and so Trout's been getting a bit of credit for so Mookie Betts, who's playing for for the for the Red Sox, uh, I, one would argue is having an equally spectacular year on the offensive side. He's kind of brought down. And the last thing is, and this is absolutely the most most difficult and controversial and differential is the defense. So Fangraphs yeah. essentially has almost no value on defense for for Trout, maybe point one point two, giving him an, uh, a war of about four point four four point three. Yet Baseball Reference gives him over a win in defense alone. Yeah, and that's. And that's why he's up around 4.9. So yeah. let me ask a question about this. Um, this is thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, who asked me to uh, put on the screen here a very interesting question. Like, I know there isn't a governing body, because I don't think Major League... That's not like Major League Baseball is going to come out and say, this is the correct way to do something. Yeah. How will all of this get resolved over time? Is it the will of the people? Is it that there'll be some just popularity in terms of it gets used more than something else? Like, how will all these Neil debates... Neil Payne has taken the average. That's what he's doing. He's been... And uh, we yeah. had a little Twitter back and forth. We explained what he did, and that's what he does. He takes all the the average of the wars that are available. No, I'm, look, I'm not saying Neil Payne's not happen. one of the most visible voices, but I'm saying... <laughs> How will how do you think all it's of this strategy. will get resolved in some way, if at well, all? I, I mean, it, one way in which it could resolve is as a, you know, as as fans or whatever, as a, as a baseball society, we start to notice over time that one of these particular treatments of war is a little bit more consistent year to year, or seems a little bit less yep. noisy. You know, like if we continue to observe that these defensive values are kind of bopping around all over the place and somebody like Mike Trout can go from essentially zero to three war just on defense alone, that I think will probably be 
people would sort of look at that and say, well, I'd rather take the one where he's sort of consistently like a one yeah. on defense. Also, uh, Shane, I think we're going to be starting to see the stat cast driven defensive measures. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, that's not out there. It is, it, it is the hopeful future is that defense is measured in a much more precise way where we can all agree on. Do you think that will lead to more defensive oriented players, both A, being in baseball and B, being getting into the Hall of Fame. Well, or that's, I mean, that's o- o- only if only under the oh, so, only under the condition <laughs> that as we, if we measure defense more precisely, the numbers go up. up as it could go I down. I actually personally believe that a lot of these defensive numbers that we're seeing right now in this kind of noisy defense era are overinflated. Yeah. And so I actually think defense. I think defense is a substantive part of baseball, but not as substantive as like some of these more extreme war. Uh, let me just to, measures to, are to doing. follow up. I think you're right, uh, Shane. Completely, it is a less substantive part of baseball only because I think there's less variance in in fielding fielding ability and what you're getting at the absolute top is not that much further than you're getting from from the middle from the average and so you're, what you're seeing is a lot of variance driven by by lots of randomness and where the balls are in a given couple games so let me ask you guys since I don't follow this as closely as you guys do why is let me let me just say a question and then give an answer and a question I'm asked two questions and I'd like to hear your answer why is defense so hard to measure in the following sense that was the first question Let's imagine, let's take a, a shortstop, a very good shortstop on a team. Let's imagine I could measure, because I have data on this now, his or her ability to accelerate. Let's even imagine that it varies by which angle the ball is from where he's standing. Let's imagine I could measure all that. Forget how I'm going to do it. Let's imagine I could measure that. Then why can't I simulate out every, every game has been played? So why can't I say to myself, how many outs extra did this person make as opposed to somebody else? Like, this person got to the ball, but this person wouldn't have gotten to the ball. Like, since we have the data on, let's call it speed and angular movement, we know where the balls went. Unless you want to add, well, the batter would have done something different because why can't we just compute this? So one of the difficulties is you don't know where they start. And that is a tremendous where where the player begins the the at-bat. Why the, don't we know that? You oh, mean, the, you, the, you the know that player? the defensive player moves. It's amazing. It really is making a muck of everything right now. Are you saying between when the pitcher releases the no, ball? No, no. I mean, they're standing at where the start they choose of the to start at the start of the. But why don't we know that? We we, we do, do know, with we we do with the newest technology. It's go, not going into the newest cal, uh, the the current calculations. I mean, okay. I so you're saying conceptually, what how, I'm how saying is silly. I'm going to be moving them around by my own in my simulation. I, I mean, I can see where they are at the beginning of a play. I mean, there's a there's a staff now that that if you watch a team like the Astros, or now even the Yankees, both of them do this, they're moving their players on every play. I mean, a lot. Not just so a saying, step here but if there. I had... I always like to separate statistical problems. I don't problems. why you, you need to simulate. If I mean, the reason that defense is so hard is that we do not have... With precise, we we are not incorporating all the data we need to in order to measure something. We do, aren't incorporating us where the player is standing when the ball is hit. We're not necessarily incorporating the trajectory of the ball. So, I mean... You know, you can see like a liner go what appears to go right through the shortstop, and you're like, "Well, why didn't he catch it?" And you don't know if it was twelve feet over his head or one foot over his head, or or, or spinning, and and it's really difficult. So my, you know, so I mean, it, but it, also, it's, it, it, so my question to you guys is: This is I always like to whenever there's a statistics problem or a, a math problem that's hard to solve, I always ask one of three questions: Is it a data problem? 
Is it a modeling or inference problem? Or is it, even if we knew the answer to these problems, people wouldn't agree on what the solution is? Which one is it? If okay. we, is it a data problem? Is it, even if we had the data... And then there's a we, credit problem, because, for example, well, now, okay. now we don't know who gets the credit for lining up that player in the right spot. It used to be, when it all came from the player, you know, one of the brilliance of so Ozzie Smith was, he figured out, he knew where to be. He was very, very good at that. And he, he would see it in the number of balls he would get. He gets to. Okay, now so you have the managerial even, staff. Right, so what you're saying around. to me is, even if I gave you every piece of data you wanted, well, you might also want to know whose decision was it to stand there. But yeah. yep. let's. I'm talking about let's call it obs- easily observable, measurable data. It would still not be a trivial problem, even given the data, the full set of data. So it's not just a data problem. It's also a let's call it a conceptual problem. A uh, you know, well, as we say in Mark, an attribution problem. There's, we'll get those there. are going to exist. We'll get there. You it's, think it's, we will get there? It's getting better. I mean, what the, exa- the example that Shane brought up with the with the line drive. You don't know how high above the fielder's head it went. We will eventually. Yeah. Is that any different than you know, not to necessarily transition away from baseball, but we have lots of other sports going on. Is what you're describing? Obviously, we have something in hockey going on right yeah. now. It's called the NHL Finals. Is it any different in hockey trying to know who to attribute something to? How about soccer? There was actually a great game between Real Madrid and Liverpool, which I watched the other day. Which I don't know. If I, any... I think those games are even more difficult. Because even more there's, difficult. There's, there's, there's more, it, it more. There's more con- continuity to the flow of the game, and there's more interactions between the players on the fielding surface. So Adi's attribution problem, which is a real one, as far as like you know, we you know, if if a particular player misses a ball, like it, there's a hit. How do we attribute blame across the different players that could have saved that from being a hit? There's a small number of players where that, you know, kind of, you know, we could attribute that blame. Um, whereas in hockey, it's such a free-flowing, and soccer, it's such a free-flowing sport, that when there's a goal, that like trying to partial up blame as this thing has built up over the last two minutes, it sounds very difficult. So if you had to, let's take our major sports, let's say, well, let's even just say, let's say baseball, where players obviously play offense and defense. Let's say hockey, where sort of players play offense and defense. Let's say soccer, where guys have offensive and, I mean, I know the people are in different positions. Which of the sports do you think defense plays the largest role in? Like, if you could compute win shares, an offensive one and a defensive one, which sport do you think defense will end up getting the most well, what do you call in. defense? So, for example, in baseball, is pitching defense? No. No. Okay, so in, in football, is defense defense? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, but, but, but football is different because no players really play Playing across both, the right. two. Right. So, because so, I, would, I would say that as a sport, defense in football is half the game. Well, let's take an example. Let's take in the NBA. You asked a question to start off our show. Was it the, you asked, you came up with a theory. Maybe it was because LeBron played really well. Maybe it's because the Celtics just missed. Another theory, which was the, maybe the Cavaliers' defense, as we stepped talked about, up. maybe stepped it up. So do you think basketball is the ultimate sport of, like, let's call it the role of defense? Do you think it's <laughs> hockey? Do you think it's soccer? Like, where do you think? Like, maybe measuring, let me just put it another way. Maybe the reason why defensive war in baseball hasn't gotten the importance that you guys think it maybe should is, maybe at the end of the day, the variation is so small that, you know what, at the end of the day, why are we wasting time? I'd rather measure offensive war in a better way because defensive war is only going to vary between some small number anyway. I I think defense... I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite... I think defense is probably more important in basketball. Like, like Like, I'm trying to think of, like, the defensive ability of an offensive player. I think is more important in basketball than it is in hockey or soccer. I mean, in part because of just the size of the playing surface. In soccer, I mean, 
You've got your offensive guys. Does Cristiano Ronaldo ever even go to his half of the field? I actually was watching that in the other in the game. I think I saw it twice. Yeah. I think I mean Offensive guys in soccer do not play defense. They just don't have to because the size of the field is such that they they, they, could, they can't they couldn't they can't. contribute yeah, they can't. anyway. They can't. Well, you know, guys, it's been a great discussion. Uh, lots more to discuss. This has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We have three quarters to go. We have two great guests coming up. So please stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks to our associate producer and friend, Dion Simpkins, for the music coming back here after the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Again, this is Eric Bradlow. I'm a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner from our statistics department. Some combination of the three of us and our co-host, Cade Massey, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week on iTunes and SoundCloud. And, of course, you can call in and join the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, guys... We're in for a real treat, given basketball is, is upon us. Obviously, we just had two great series go on, and we have a, we hope a great series coming up. Uh, joining us here on Wharton Moneyball is Dean Oliver. Uh, Dean is currently Vice President of Data at True Media Networks. He's obviously one of the pioneers of advanced statistical methods in basketball. I could spend the entire time talking about Dean's accomplishments but I will just and, and his roles in sports, but I'll just mention a few. Besides his undergraduate degree from Caltech and his Ph.D. from UNC Chapel Hill, he worked for the Seattle Supersonics, the Denver Nuggets, ESPN, and, of course, he was Director of Player Personnel and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings. So, Dean, uh, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with uh, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Morning, gentlemen. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Dean. So let's just start with the following. We could talk, uh, before we get to the next round, uh, which we hope will be somewhat exciting, could you talk to us about, as someone that's both from the analytics side and from the player personnel side, let's start in the Eastern Conference. Um, What did you see in Game 7, and, you know, how would you answer all the critics that say, well, yeah, LeBron made the finals, but who did he really play? How, How did you see the Eastern Conference play out? I I think it's bad to dismiss LeBron's run in this year. I, I think he faced very good teams. I mean, people were talking about Brad Stevens as coach of the year, not only coach of the year, basically coach of the decade for some of the stuff that he was doing. Um, I think uh, when you face, put your back to the wall as as LeBron and his team, they they were in trouble. Uh, I don't think you can dismiss the the quality of the competition as easily as people want to do that. Um, Boston is very, they have talent. They obviously have a lot of high picks and everything. So they pushed them hard. Indiana, I I think there is one of the differences between say Toronto and the other two teams that they faced, that the other two teams match up very well against Cleveland in terms of how they defend LeBron. They know how to do it. They've, they've had to do it and they've, they've done that well. So, you're you're playing not only talent, you're playing some good coaches uh, that know what they're doing. And so when you looked at the, let's even say the Game 7, Adi Weiner, my co-host here, uh, asked this question at the start of our show. When you looked at Game 7, was it LeBron's greatness or is it just, you know, boy. Cavaliers Celt- team uh, they, stepping up or the, yeah, the Celtics not playing great? Yeah, or the Celtics just missed a lot of shots and that's going to happen. How did you see that game or is it a combination of both? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think one of the ways that I phrase it is is that what happens at the start of any series, there's this feeling out process. And, and I frankly criticize LeBron for actually not 
doing more to start the series because game ones he's been he's been bad. Then you kind of transition into this games three, four, five where there's a lot of tactical. Okay, we figured out what they're going to do and let's let's make some adjustments. What happens in games six and seven? To get to what you're talking about, then each team has seen each other. They know they know the adjustments that are going to happen, and then it does start to become talent uh, again. That's what uh, the the underdogs like the Celtics in many ways um, needed to try to take care of this a little bit earlier uh, when they still had a tactical advantage. Because once you get to the end, yeah, the, the LeBron ability uh, and and what you're talking about, you just start missing some shots at the end and. Uh, those guys, I I do tend to believe that there are some nerves when you get to a game seven, when you have young guys like that. Those nerves, I, I felt them, and I know I never played as well when I was nervous, when I was kind of sweating before the game. So how did you view? Let's now move on to the Western Conference. Um, have you ever seen anything like O for twenty seven? And you know, even, not to not to pick on him particularly. Obviously, I don't think James Harden had a particularly good game, but. I'm pretty sure Trevor Ariza was 0 for 14 in the game with zero points. So have you seen anything like, I mean, uh, 538 put it at a 72,000 to 1 odds against hit, missing 27 threes in a row. Um, have you ever seen anything like that? Yeah, certainly there are games where I've seen important streaks, whether you go 0 for 27 or 0 for 13 or, or 1 for 17. You see these kind of things happen, and yeah, that was that was an extreme case. Um, and you, I think it's it's a statement on Golden State a bit. That historically, they've been really, really good at closing out. They have been a team that, if you're going to shoot threes, you you better have a lot of space because it's hard. They they switch and they switch on the perimeter, so they they don't have to run out and recover to get to you. So they're going to be a team that forces that kind of thing as well. And they they missed some open ones. Houston definitely missed uh, several open ones. But that's going to happen too. So let me ask you a question. If you're now, if you're sitting there, matter of fact, you could have been, um, let's imagine you're Daryl Morey. So you're now sitting there and the season's over. As obviously you've played many roles, player personnel roles, et cetera, on teams. Is this something you say to yourself, look, over 27 happened. We could have won that game. Maybe we should have won that game. If Chris Paul is healthy, we're going to win this series. I'm going to stand pat. We're not going to get worse next year. Maybe Golden State starts to break down over all the games they've played and injuries. We see Iguodala's injured. Curry's banged up. Do you hold pat or do you say, you know what, our formula just didn't work? How, how would you think about that if you were sitting there in the rocket shoes right now? You definitely do not say the formula didn't work because you were that close to beating them. Uh, if, if Chris Paul had, hadn't gone up and tweaked his hamstring, you feel really good about uh, your chances there. And, uh, but on the other hand, you're not, uh, you're, you're not standing pat. Uh, Daryl has never stood pat. He is going to look for undervalued opportunities that, that sit out there, whether it's personnel or, or tactics or training things. You're going to do everything you can to – keep Chris Paul healthy next year uh, and James Harden and uh, you know how difficult it is and frankly most of these teams that are playing against the Warriors they're looking for one opportunity they want one title you don't think about two or three or four you're just trying to get one 
And yes, you are thinking that maybe next year Curry is the one who gets hurt. So, Dean, and, this, is, this is Audie Weiner. I, I, I'm, I don't watch that much basketball, but I've been immersing myself into the, into the season this year. I've actually started to build some models. Um, what do you think about, just if you, you have to evaluate the two teams... Uh, and maybe maybe you can think of them as full strength. We're talking about Cavaliers and Warriors. No, I'm, I, well, we can do it for all. For we can. Well, I don't think that's an easier question. I was actually meaning the Rockets and the Warriors. If you just do it, evaluate them, say at full strength. Do you think they're, that the Warriors are a better team, or do you think that the Rockets are a better team? So if you go through go th- predicting, say the next year, and don't try to degrade them in any way, just imagine everybody at full strength. Which is the better team? Full strength and competitive, right? Yep. So, yep. What happened, uh, of course, over the course of this year is that the Warriors didn't play all that hard for a while. And Draymond was part of that. Draymond is a great defender, but hey, you got to save some of that. <laughs> so, uh, when uh, I, I do think the Warriors are, are, are a little better team in part because of, of what Draymond can do, um, there are matchup advantages that you can still take advantage of and beat them. But yeah, I think they're a little bit better so the rockets are still a little bit of a, a long shot not a long shot but a bit but the underdog which means that they have to either make adjustments or or count on some some randomness that they may not see would they want to invest in some variants kind of take a chance on yeah. some kind of more up and down type players and hope they hit the ups yeah and and they have some of those uh, as well and they did a good job they they did prepare they had a small lineup that you can play against the Warriors, which is one of those traditional things you do. You you play a small lineup because they don't have – the Warriors, their weakness historically has been that if you play them kind of straight up, you switch on the perimeter so you don't have to help, is they can't go by you. They are not very good off the dribble. Even Kevin Durant, he goes, he tries to go by you off the dribble, and he's got to pull up for that mid-range thing. So you can play small. Yeah, I was and so impressed with the combination. Forget how Ariza played a shot in the last game. This combination of Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker, Trevor Ariza, I was like, wow, Daryl Morey has found three guys that are tough, physical, can really play. I, I don't know, Dean, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I just thought the three of them, forget, I understand Trevor Ariza didn't shoot well in the last game. But, man, I was so impressed with that lineup and group. It's a, it's a, you're finding the role players that can play with your stars. And sometimes those role players can carry you. And they did. I mean, Ariza carried them in, I believe it was the game two. I, all of those three guys actually carried them in game two when they blew out the Warriors. So I actually, I, right. go ahead. Uh, that is exactly what you are looking for. They're, they are, they're going to have their down days. And Tucker is not a great shooter, and uh, Ariza is usually better than that. But uh, they're going to have some of those games, and you hope actually. Uh, you're sitting in that Game 7 situation, and you're hoping you have Chris Paul and James Harden, and those guys can carry you when your role players can't. Okay, so I was looking at the at the shot distribution chart that was published in the paper right after the game, and the Rockets looked like textbook analytics. Every shot was either from the perimeter, from the three-point line, or in the paint, and there was nothing in that mid-range conversely or in contradistinction the warriors had many mid-range shots which is very interesting because the little things that, that i know about basketball say that those are very inefficient shots but maybe that's the secret in some way that 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 we're missing what, what do you think of what how do you explain this yeah there is there is some truth to there's a matchup advantage that you can sometimes claim if you are really good at mid-range and you face one of these teams like the rockets one of these analytics teams that has built their team about around defending threes and layups, and you are good, maybe not the greatest, but 
good at that mid-range shot, all of a sudden you're facing a team that hasn't had to defend that, so they have to change what they do. And the classic advantage, uh, classic uh, example of this is actually when Dallas beat Miami in 2011, I want to say, and they had the greatest mid-range shooter of the modern era in Dirk Nowitzki, and they went through teams like San Antonio um, that were really good at taking away threes and layups. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Brado, and we're here with our guest this morning, Dean Oliver. Dean is currently vice president of data at True Media Networks and one of the pioneers of advanced statistical methods in basketball. Um, he's worked for teams such as the Supersonics, the Nuggets, and, of course, recently the Sacramento Kings. So, Dean, as we look forward to the finals... I mean, everyone has it. You know, we, we all made our predictions on the show. I made a prediction of Warriors in five. I think, if I remember correctly, uh, I had Adi Warriors was in seven. Shane had Warriors in seven. Adi had split Warriors. the difference. Yeah, we split the difference. The Warriors in six. How do you see the finals playing out? I don't think it's easy for the Warriors. I, I now really no, I do not think so because I the Cavaliers they've played these guys three years already. They should know the Warriors. But LeBron has. LeBron has. But George Hill has not. Larry Nance Jr. has not. I mean, yeah, Kevin Love has. But, I mean, isn't this a different... Maybe this is a good thing, as you're saying, because in some sense... uh, Let me ask you a question. Let me just ask the question. Is it a good... Let's pretend for the moment that the Cavs are as good as last year's team. I don't necessarily believe they are, but let's say they are. Is it good that... It's going to take the Warriors a while to adjust to this Cavs team? I mean, this isn't the same Cavs team as the last two years. How do you see that? I think there is some truth to that because you you do have to figure out what some of these role players are going to be. And right now the Warriors are staring, do we prepare for Kevin Love or not? There is an advantage to not showing your cards early. If Kevin Love does play, that's different than if he doesn't. And, yes, those new guys. The Warriors are a smart team, just like LeBron is a very smart player. And you prepare and you get to know some of these guys anyway but how they're going to play together that sometimes you don't know until you see uh, game one but you do all the homework you can in preparation and what's your belief so what's your like why do you think the Warriors will not have it easy in this series what what have you seen either in the playoffs or maybe it's you know the greatness of LeBron James which no one doubts at this point or should have doubted for a while what is it that makes you think is it the matchups is it anything analytically that you've seen that makes you think the Warriors may win but it won't be as easy as people are thinking I, I think if Cleveland comes out and they play game one the way they have figured out how to play towards the end of the last couple of finals, that you play the Warriors a lot of one-on-one, you force them to try to beat you off the dribble, and you play them physically, um, assuming they know that. And this is the difficulty of prediction is, do they know this? Do they remember this? Um, assuming they know that, yeah, they can take an early game. And all of a sudden, if they take game one, uh, it looks a little less likely for that easy series, right? So that's what I see them. They should know it. But you they do should know how to You play. do have the Warriors as your favorite, correct? I'm, I'm not. Yeah, yes. but I am. I'm more on the, the the six games or seven game series. But uh, I and I would not say so. I don't know what the odds were. I think they were saying what ninety percent or ninety. Well, you, they're they're somewhere between uh, ten percent. The, the, the Cavs have about a, between ten and fifteen percent chance, depending. Yeah, on it's a twelve. And a half, yeah, it's a twelve and a half point spread in the first game. 
Yeah, which is is crazy, I think. But uh, that could very well move depending on love and those kind of situations as well. So we haven't spoken to you a lot about what you guys are doing right now at uh, at True Media. Could you tell us about what you guys are doing and what the firm's about? Uh, well, True Media is a is a company that provides a lot of analytical databases to teams and to media. So uh, when they're trying to figure out using analytics, Moneyball stuff, of course, to evaluate players, to evaluate strategies, to make forecasts on what players are going to be um, in order to build the tactics for how to beat the Warriors. Uh, this is the kind of work that we do. Uh, we have we have a lot of – I'm frankly doing a lot of football, and I know you have a, a football guest coming up as well. So we're doing a lot to figure out what to do with some of this player tracking data that's coming out in the NFL. Well, do you sell services or do you just sell compilations of data and you expect them to figure it out themselves? Uh, we do both, yeah. So we will consult on things as well as provide just the data and, and some of the methods for teams to work on themselves. We, When you work with a team, there's a lot of customized questions that you may not even ask consultants about. So we may take them 80% of the way, and then they have to do that last 20%. Do you think in football and, say, basketball, uh, they're still actually going to outsiders? Because almost every baseball team has its own in-house you know, uh, analytics crew, and they don't appeal to outside companies for for help. Um, sometimes they well, talk to a professor every now and then, but but for the most part, they have somehow very large staffs. So this is, uh, but where where to say uh, football and basketball lie vis a vis baseball? Uh, it, it's actually a little bit different landscape. So baseball, we work for a lot of baseball teams. We work really for many of them. Um, uh, we do now. We're working for uh, a bunch. of football teams we work for relatively few basketball teams and i in part blame myself um having joined the nba whatever 15 years ago uh we built a trend for building things internally so there hasn't been as much uh outside consulting i have done some for sure but it's uh yeah i would say basketball is the one where it's the least reliant on outside consultants mm. could you give us an example of a recent project without obviously the details of the team or whatever what was a recent project that either new data or a new way of looking at things led to an insight that hadn't been there before uh there's uh certainly the new data allows you to value so let's stick to basketball here at this point um, with regard to basketball, you can do things evaluating uh, how to defend players a lot more refined than you ever were before. And who's who's good at being able to take away the drive and the pass off the drive at the same time, evaluating those kind of players. So the, the spacing that comes out of player tracking data, for instance, around the rim in particular, can tell you some things that People didn't know that before. Uh, you know how tall players are, but you don't know how good they are at taking up space. And, and Draymond is very good at understanding that, for instance. Is there any player, um, since you guys are doing, I assume, player evaluations, both current and potentially drafted players, um, is there any player that maybe to the naked eye, to the more novice person that is undervalued either on the Warriors or the Cavs? Like you mentioned Draymond Green. I think while his stat line is never great, I think he gets a fair amount of press for being a great all-around player. Um, is there any other player in this series that isn't getting their proper due due to the analytics and data you guys are collecting? It's, it's funny because I've always felt that Kyle 
Corver has never gotten the respect. And you're getting at one of the questions I never like, which is who's underrated and who's overrated, because as soon as you give an answer to that, it changes. But um, I think Corver uh, is such a key weapon for for the Cavs and, frankly, a lot of the other teams that he's been on. And I think his defense has been underrated. And finally, there was visual evidence in this last series where he had blocks on a number of players that, that were high profile and such. Uh, so he would be my first answer to that underappreciated guy. Obviously, he's a, he's a veteran. Uh, I, I think it's possible, now this is one of those long shots, that that the Cavs forget about, say, Quinn Cook. And Quinn Cook comes off the bench at some point and hits a couple key threes. Not that Quinn Cook is going to win games by himself, but I can see him being one of those deep bench guys that the Cavs say, who is this guy? And he gets a couple key shots in this series. Yeah, so Dean, we only have about a minute left, but let me ask you, um, I know in the last series, this, there was a strange stat they put up which surprised me a little bit, which was I understand plus-minus has its flaws, but you could argue analytically the Cavs were better with Kevin Love off the floor than he was on the floor. Is there, I mean, just that was the plus-minus in the last series, and it was not even close. Is there any thought that if Kevin Love doesn't come back, or he's not, you know, he, or maybe he's more balanced, maybe only plays twenty-five to thirty minutes, that the Cavs could actually be better with some combination of Larry Nance or Tristan Thompson or whoever's going to fill his minutes. Or no, that's just crazy. Unlikely over a long series, even if it may be a short-term benefit, as they say, because you have the surprise. But in the long term, I, I think it's very unlikely. So maybe just as a last question to you, um, what what should we be looking for in Game 1? I'm one of those people that always likes to make predictions for the whole game after watching the first quarter. If it's sitting there at the end of the first quarter, let's forget the score. What should we be looking for that will tell us, like kind of a harbinger for the series? Are, are the Cavs switching a lot on the perimeter and forcing the Warriors into uh, one-on-one matchups as the, as the Rockets did? Forcing Kevin Durant to isolate from the top of the key. Uh, those That ISO count that they were talking about in the Houston series is Cleveland forcing Golden State into ISOs. Yep. Well, Dean, we want to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Dean Oliver, Vice President of Data at True Media Networks, uh, one of the pioneers of statistical analysis in both basketball, and of course now he says he's working on football, formerly of many teams, the Seattle Supersonics, Denver Nuggets, and Sacramento Kings. Dean, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Have a good So this has been the first half hour of Wharton Moneyball. We have another guest after the break. And then, of course, we have our over-under segment in the last half hour of our show and many more things to cover. Please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-hosts this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. And if you want to join the conversation, which we love phone calls from you, the fans, uh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at at WMoneyBall. That's at WMoneyBall. So, guys, we're really in for a treat. While it's not currently the NFL season, I think in my household it's always the NFL season, so we can. it's always time to talk about the NFL. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Josh Hermsmeyer joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Uh, Josh runs airyards.com, which provides data and metrics 
for the NFL analysts. He's also a great follow on Twitter at Frisco Josh. Uh, so, Josh, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with, this morning with my co-hosts, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Eric, Shane, Adi, thanks for having me on. A real thrill. Yeah, it's great to have you great on. Great to have you. Great yeah. to have you on. So, Josh, why don't we just start with the beginning? Um, you know, it also says here you have a taste van, a, a wine app. You're a former winemaker. So you have to tell us about your path, about both being a winemaker and how you got into NFL and analytics. Sure. So about, uh, well, 20 years ago, graduated from Davis uh, with a degree in enology, viticulture, and economics, and started a vineyard winery, a small Pinot Noir brand out there. And uh, we sold that around 2011, and I went into uh, a business partnership with uh, my current partner, John Jordan, at Jordan Winery, and uh, we started a software company uh, called Labrador. And and through that entire period, I was interested in analytics and, and all the rest. I started uh, Sabermetrics and since lost interest in baseball and the uh, past two years been been working on football. And it's uh, actually turned out to be an exciting time to uh, to be involved in football analytics. I think we're at the start of some pretty interesting times. And is this something you're doing just for fun on the side or is it, it's not part of your business? It's just, well, well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a two-part question. Um, sure. Do you use analytics in the wine business? Oh, absolutely. So uh, in the wine business, you really, uh, it's all about depletions and, uh, and, and I think you guys discussed customer lifetime value, all those types of things you want to model, you want to model the velocity of sales, all that kind of thing. So definitely it was something uh, I did uh, and do for, uh, for my day job, but um, I think the data is, it's just much richer in, in, in sports, as you guys all know, and what makes it appealing is the rules are known and, and they're not a, there are a lot of things that you can uh, make uh, pretty good assumptions about. Hey, this is uh, Shane Jensen. When you say, uh, you, uh, I was kind of piqued by your earlier uh, statement that this is kind of, you're kind of entering an interesting time for uh, for football and analytics. Is that because of the kind of data that's coming down the, the pipe in, a, in the next couple of years? Part of it. Also, part of it was that there weren't a lot of people doing interesting things with any new data. And uh, one of the data sets I stumbled upon early on in this was uh, air yards and uh, that Elias was actually charting um, complete and incomplete air yards on every play. And while that isn't as robust as the type of charting the league is getting and the teams are getting right now with the player tracking data, it was certainly a step, a step towards understanding and better understanding uh, the passing game. And um, and that's that's really why why I started com was just kind of leverage that new data set and try and unearth uh, some new insights and and it was a fairly rich source of them. So uh, so what have you done with that re- data set? Really, just trying to understand how depth of target, how yards after the catch, um, and catch rate are all intertwined and and they actually are inversely related up to about twenty five yard depth. So you'll you'll see that catch rate decreases the further uh, the depth of target goes out to, like I say, around 25 yards, and it's almost the exact same. It's a mirrored thing with yak. So, um, as you might expect, if you if you throw a swing pass to a guy, he's got no defenders around him. Um, he's going to get more yards after the catch than someone who's uh, caught a ball in the middle of the field with three defenders around him. So, 
those relationships really hadn't been explored, at least publicly, um, and and that's really what uh, what drove the site and my interest. So, uh, according to our notes, thanks to our producer Matt Datz, you've created some new stats. So, could we take these one at a time? We always like to hear about these new stats. What's uh, I don't know if you call it PACR, but PACR. What is that? Pacer. Yeah. So that's uh, passing yards divided by air yards, and it's a measure of you know the the efficiency of if you're going to take a shot down the field. How many yards should you expect to get in return on average uh, from that play? So it's a, a ratio of, of of those completed yards plus yak divided by the air yards you had to throw the ball, the depth of that target. And so it's kind of a, a way of combining catch rate and yak into one metric and adjusting it for depth. So just to understand, um, is this what have you shown this is correlated to? Is it correlated? I mean, we're obviously not going to believe yeah, it's is, causal. Is this in decision any way. making? I mean, I'm trying to figure this out. Is this is this useful for decision making or is it evaluation oriented? So my entire kind of um, the entire idea for me is that if a metric is going to be useful, it has to be stable over time and it has to correlate with things we care about. And uh, this metric happens to be when you look at it, especially from the receiver's point of view. Pacer and racer are kind of the flip of the same coin, just the context in which you look at the, the stat. Racer is receiving yards divided by air yards, and pacer is passing yards divided by air yards. Anyway, the context in which you look at it um, is important. And both metrics, if you look at it from the highest level possible, say the league level, correlate better with touchdowns, yards, all, all the things you would care about, and then even yards per attempt or anything else and they're more stable year over year. So that got me really excited when I started looking at that. Um, It turns out that for quarterbacks, when you drop down to the player or team level, the correlation isn't as strong with, say, touchdowns as yards per attempt. Um, But on the receiver side, racer is by far the most stable uh, efficiency metric we have for, for wide receivers, and it's also one that correlates best with um, the things that teams should care about, which is, um, um, you know, catch rate and uh, touchdowns and, and, and all the good things. And I've, I've kind of written about this on my site and uh, published research on it. And again, we're talking to Josh Hermsmeyer. Uh, Josh runs airyards.com. He also runs a winery. And by the way, our producer, Matt Dax, is appropriate. Um, the address here at the Wharton School is 3730 Walnut Street. If you want to send some samples of that wine, um, Adi, myself, <laughs> and Shane, we're all above the age of 21. Dion Simpkins, our associate producer, likes wine too. So just send some here. We'll taste it on the air, as a matter of fact, the next time you come on. But today we're here to talk about airyards.com. I have a question about uh, PACR. So is there an optimal, like if I was to graph, is there an interior optimum here where, for example, if you want to maximize the total yards, meaning yards of the catch and the yards after the catch, where does that exist? And that's why I assume PACR is trying to get at that. Like you could throw a ball 30 yards down the field, but it may, it has a lower completion rate, of course. And As, lower yards after the catch. And lower and yards you're after to, the catch. Yeah. You're trying to incorporate all of that. Is there an optimum, like 14 yards, 17 yards? Where, where, would, where should people be throwing the ball? It's an interesting question, and I don't know that it is equipped to answer it, unfortunately, because there's so many routes that are grouped into each depth of target. I think to answer those type of questions, like what should teams be doing more of, I think we need to use the type of data that I'm working with right now, which actually parses out each play and assigns it a route type. Um, I'd even go a step further and say that uh, route types need to be understood in the, in the larger kind of view of what the route concept is. 
you know, is it a high low? Are you, are you trying to stretch the field uh, uh, laterally? Those type of things. But what I use Pacer for and what I use Racer for is to kind of, I take the league average at each depth. Um, and then I try and see which quarterbacks um, or receivers are more efficient than average um, at each depth. So uh, if, you, if you see a guy like, uh, let, let's take, for instance, Antonio Brown, he is much more efficient than league average at almost every depth on the field. That's what I was going to ask you. Is there just a, you know, in math we call it, is there just a unidimensional ability scale, or are there differences you see across depths? There are differences across depths. And so it, it's really a way, it can't be collapsed into a point estimate. It really needs to be spread out across each depth because of that. So, so, so racer is a function of the depth. Is that what I'm getting? Yeah, absolutely. So you actually have a graph of racer. Uh, that's how you look at it. Right. And another way of conceptualizing racer or pacer is just um, uh, yards per attempt divided by dot. So you're just taking the two-point estimates and getting a, a, single, um, uh, a single ratio. But if you do that, if you change, instead of you have dot, you just change the depth of the target of the pass. And then you graph that, you see, uh, you know, you see the league average curve, and then you can plot a player's curve overlaying it mm-hmm. and understand where they're good on the field. Could you also talk us about? You have one that I, do you call it Whopper? W O P R? Is it Whopper? Yeah, weighted opportunity ratio. That, that that's really just a way to understand which teams' uh, receivers are their primary receivers, and 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 really, it's taking the notion of uh, players that get the most targets, obviously are the team's uh, most important receivers, but also also weighing in how deep those targets are. Um, something that I think it, it, the NFL has kind of got away from is the notion that um, deeper targets are actually worth more. If you look at it from any type of metric, uh, expected points added, um, uh, win probability, it, 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 it's a, akin a little bit to the three-point play. While the, while the efficiency is lower, um, the overall expected value of a deep pass is, is higher than a short pass. And so weighing in uh, the depth of those targets that those players are getting, which is what Whopper does, um, it gets, gets at, I think, a little closer how valuable um, each player's uh, opportunity is on the team. And for a team that's maybe scouting its next opponent, it gives you a quantitative way of figuring out who they're who their number one target is. So do you think that some of the great quarterbacks sort of understand this a little bit better, or they're better at the, these uh, decision-making, or they have better skills to complete the longer passes? Or what do, you, what do you think that kind of works out? My understanding about football is they've gotten to more passing and more shorter passing over the years as opposed to what you're almost suggesting is they should be going to longer passing. I think they need to do more longer passing, and I think uh, the first step, at least from a, an analytical point of view, is to understand which routes, are the most effective. It appears with the data I've been working with currently that uh, the post route among deep target, deep targeted routes is the most effective. But in any event, I think there's a lot more work to be done. But um, to, your, to your initial question about whether there are quarterbacks that are better at it, then yes, absolutely. And, and, and that's what pacer and completion percentage adjusted for depth can really show you if you were to graph them uh, versus league average. People like uh, Drew Brees are deep, uh, are absolutely effective and, and accurate at all levels of the playing field, and uh, and that's what makes them really special. Uh, this is Shane Jensen. <clears throat> Sorry, uh, one of the other uh, kind of components of this that I think is very hard to build in, but I would love to see built in in some way, is the propensity of these kind of long passes to draw pass interference penalties. And I know mm-hmm. that just based on the basic data itself, it's hard to build that in. 
But I think that's an additional advantage of, of, of teams that can throw that deep ball. I always think of Joey Flacco like just hucking it down the field and hoping for pass interference. Do you envision a time when those types of situations where somehow a play that did not re- result in a successful pass but did result in a pass interference penalty, that's kind of attributed to the quarterback and wide receiver? Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Uh, I think it'll probably end up being the case that it's it's the wide receiver that matters more on those deep passes because uh, if you look at last year, for instance, a lot of people were saying coming into the season that Carson Wentz was a low A dot guy, right? He, he liked to throw short, and and uh, that Alex Smith, his whole career had always been a, a dink and dunk game manager. But if you give them wide receivers who can get open deep, um, they will indeed throw the ball deep. It, it, it really is the case that that the quarterbacks are like bartenders. I mean, their their job is to throw the ball on time and on target. They aren't deciding on depth so much. They're going through the progression, and if a guy is open, they 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 make the throw. Um, and so I, I think that uh, uh, the depth of target is, is, is owned by the wide receiver, and we, sh- and we see that in the correlation and the stability year over year of, of, of depth of target is that it really belongs to the receiver. So um, if a team gets a new uh, wide receiving core and they're uh, speed burners and they're really good at getting separation and getting open deep, um, then I think you'll see more success on that team, um, even with a quarterback who in the past, has been a dink and dunker and hasn't really shown any specific ability to throw deep. I think that every quarterback who makes it to the NFL probably has the ability and the skill set um, to to throw a, a reasonably good deep pass. I think uh, I want to move to a slightly different topic related, but uh, I think Adi's question, which we'll probably revisit with you and later and future shows, is if this trend of ex- higher expected points and win shares is coming with long passes, why does it appear the teams seem to be doing the opposite and, try- and throwing lots of shorter passes? And that's an interesting question as well. Um, I know you've done, for someone that, as these guys know, they ridicule me every year about this. Um, there's no one that spends more time watching the Combine than me. Um, I love nope. I, nobody. I, nobody. Cade, I lo- Cade might be catching up to you on that yeah. one. No, no, no. Yeah. Cade just goes in person. <laughs> yeah, but Cade goes, after he but, leaves, he doesn't but watch I'm anymore. I'm talking about I watch it on the screen. <laughs> so um, I know you've done some recent work about the relationship between the 40-yard time in the combine or it's just someone's 40-yard time and how fast they actually run the field. Can you talk to us? Because everybody loves an analysis. Like, you know, they always say, well, the guy's fast in pads. I, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? What type of analysis did you do? Sure. So... I guess my, my take on the whole thing is that the the confounders that we're trying to control for in the combine, the things we're trying to eliminate actually turn out to be the most important factors uh, in terms of success on the football field. Guys trying to tackle you, lateral agility, trying to move left and right and avoid those tacklers so that you can find a um, uh, an open lane and use your straight line speed. And, and I'll speak specifically right now to 40 time, uh, leaving aside the rest of this stuff. And I'll also kind of confine my analysis to, to skilled players. But if you, if, you, if you look at max speed on the football field with all those, all those confounders kind of added back in, you find that there's a very, very low correlation between measured 40 speed at the combine and max speed on the actual field of play. So the, and, and, I, and I think another part of it is it's only a two-sample test at the combine at most if a guy doesn't get injured. Um, and, and whereas with uh, game speed and, and, and the things we have with player tracking, 
you know, we have dozens of them per game, perhaps for uh, a specific player. So I just want to make sure, just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, I just want to make sure we're all t- we're talking about the same thing. I think I'm following you. Your first comment is forty, and we talk about this in statistics and analytics all the time. First of all, forty yard speed is measured imperfectly because not even the measurement instrument. You only get two runs at the combine. So number one, that you know that's not a perfect measure. And what you're correlating that with is you're correlating that with you can track. The player's max speed on well, the football field. Well, that's the problem field. right there. And so, I just, so that's what you're correlating together. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, I mean, so max speed. So in in a, in a forty a forty though, the, you're looking at the average time. That's what that's what matters. It's the distance, how long it took you to go that entire distance. So that's the average speed that matters. But you're looking at max, and actually that that actually does is quite variable among players. I mean, someone who can go very fast for have past average speed over forty yards, starting from zero, um, may may not have the highest max. Correct, and that's why you need to adjust for distance traveled. And uh, and when you do that, you you find that um, uh, you could take a I have a, a strangely named metric called uh, FUPA or FAPA fastness over positional average, and um, so that would be, again, you would have a, a league average curve and then you would measure the distance that a player um, is over that curve um, at each point, at each distance traveled in terms of miles per hour over or under the average. And, and again, it doesn't, it doesn't correlate with, with the measured 40 time. And, and again, what I, I think the best I found was that it explained 8% of variance. And, and, and I, and I think, again, I think what it gets back to is that um, those things, on the football field um, that allow a player to get up to his own personal max speed to get to achieve his highest uh, uh, rate of travel um, are the important things. Um, the, the ability to evade tacklers, the ability to, to, to have vision and find the open hole and, uh, and to, uh, to get the uh, opportunity to run in a straight line. Um, at a high speed. So, Josh, so, let me ask you a related question to that. So, um, mm-hmm. we're big. Uh, well, I don't know if we're big, but you know, obviously, we have something exciting going on in horse racing right now. The Triple Crown. The reason why I thought it, I thought about it when I was relating to your work is that you know we uh, one of our experts on the show, Jeff Cedar, who does a lot of work in horse racing, says every horse slows down throughout the race. Just some horses slow down less. Is the same true in the NFL? I know you've done some work on first quarter speed versus later speed. Does everybody slow down as the game goes on, or does some players slow down less, or are there some players that are just better later in the game? What did you find? Well, on average, it doesn't appear that players do get too much, um, see too much fatigue in the fourth quarter. Um, But they do, if you uh, look at distance traveled, when you get up to about 40 yards distance travel in the fourth quarter, so these are the longer plays, that roughly equates to a 20-yard um, uh, play as measured on the field um, uh, from perpendicular from the line of scrimmage. Um, 40 yards of di- total travel, there's about 20 yards in there. About half of it is lateral travel. Um, you do see a significant decline in, in game speed on those type of plays. Um, but there are... Strangely, there are players who do get faster, it appears, um, as, as the game goes on. And one example, that's Leonard Fournette from last season. Um, he was actually below average and a lot of distances traveled uh, uh, in the first quarter and well, well above average in terms of game speed in the fourth quarter. What would explain well, but, that? But that does, was he actually going faster? Because it could just be that the average is decreasing substantially more than he is decreasing. 
so what we do is we what I do is I bin um, the total number of runs at each uh, distance traveled, and uh, I average the max speed of each of those bins, and then I plot that using lowest regression uh, or lowest uh, um, non-parametric smoothing. And and what you can do is you can put error bars around that compared to the league average and or error bands, and and there's a significant difference. He's actually faster mm. later in the game. Hmm. So you also have done some work, by the way, I assume uh, you've also done some work relatedly on, you know, there's been a lot of controversy, as you remember this last season, on should players even be playing on Thursday night, not just from an injury point of view, but players aren't at their best. Um, I know you've done some work uh, comparing Thursday night football to Sunday football. What have you found? There is no difference in player game speed on on the average um, between Thursday night football and Sunday games. Hmm. Why? So, so in sense, sense, what you have found is there's no what I would call obvious fatigue factor that seems to be going on. It does not. I mean, it does not appear that there's anything systematic throughout the game that kind of everybody's slowing down. It does not appear that on three days rest as opposed to six days rest that there's some massive difference in speed. So that doesn't. In other words, your data suggests that that's not happening. No, no, and and that was surprising to me. Yeah, I mean. I'm not sure your data is um, capable <clears throat> of uh, testing this, but uh, anecdotally, a lot of people talk about the kind of injury propensity or something like that that comes with the Thursday night games, and most people attribute that to some sort of you know fatigue factor. Do you have any kind of common like? Are there more injuries in Thursday night games compared to sort of su- Sunday games? Um, and if we can rule out fatigue as 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 the real factor behind that, what what could possibly be leading to that? It's a good question, and uh, the, the studies I've seen haven't found a significant difference in, in, in injuries. Um, I think that uh, um, right now the, the league is looking at kickoffs. So that, that's, I, I think if they had found that, for instance, uh, that there was a significant difference in injury rate uh, between Thursday night and Sunday night games, I think it, there would at least been something on the table to discuss keeping it around. Um, but no, I don't have any data that suggests that that's what's occurring, and certainly uh, the players themselves don't appear to be slower uh, on those Thursday night games. I know you've done an analysis also of uh, quarterbacks. Uh, that was a big discussion point in last, you know, uh, in this year's draft. Since you know a number of four or five quarterbacks were taken in the first round, um, how, who who won the who won the draft who won the dra- quarterback draft lottery? Do you like Mayfield, Allen, Rosen? Jackson, Darnold. Darnold. Yeah, who, who did you see? What did your analysis show, and what do you think about the draft in the quarterback position? Sure. Quarterbacks are so difficult, right? And I think that um, once you've culled the field to NFL-caliber talent, um, the things that differentiate a, a good NFL quarterback from an average or a bad one are, are probably mostly mental. Um, I, I, I think that that's kind of uh, shown in the, in the hit rate on quarterbacks in the draft. Even top draft picks uh, have a propensity to bust. Um, so one of the things I've been looking for is a, a good proxy for mental processing. And, and the best I've found at the college level is this depth-adjusted completion percentage. And if you can find a player who can read the field and complete passes at a high rate at all depths, it means that he is able to read that, okay, the, the middle route is going to come open on this play and, and, and the, the left side of the field where they're playing man coverage um, my high-low, uh, my read progression is taking me to, uh, to to this guy at this depth. And so Baker Mayfield had stellar completion percentages at all depths of the field. 
and uh, it, it was so night and day over the rest of the um, uh, the rest of the uh, other potential uh, uh, quarterbacks that could have been taken in his place that it really seemed to me a triumph of logic that he was the guy that went one one at the Browns. And um, really the rest of them kind of grouped together into a, a kind of a, a, a muddle, and, and the data didn't really um, allow you to tease out who might be better. I, I kind of would have leaned Rosen over Darnold, but it certainly did show that uh, Josh Allen was uh, should not have been in consideration at the top of the track. So what you're saying is, is that so Baker Mayfield had a higher completion rate at every depth than I would imagine. Uh, he, doesn't, he didn't necessarily have a higher completion rate overall because of the proportion of passes that he took in different spots. It was the classic Simpsons paradox. It's perfectly possible that you have a higher completion percentage at every single depth, yet overall you can have a lower completion rate. Is that kind of what happened? And that, or, or does make Baker Mayfield have a, a higher completion percentage overall too? Is there, was there something subtle in this that, 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 that you needed to do this proper analysis or was it sort of obvious to step up? And Josh, before you answer, just once, uh, just Again, for our listeners here on Morton Moneyball, we're talking to Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh currently runs airyards.com, and he also uh, is a winemaker. And the other thing I just want to make sure before Josh answers, just to clear up what Adi was talking about, Simpsons Paradox, let's imagine there's short passes and long passes. Short passes have a higher completion percentage than long passes. Maybe Baker Mayfield throws a lot more long passes, and therefore, even though he's better than every other quarterback at long passes, because he throws a lot more of them, his overall completion percentage is lower. He could be better at both. But overall, his overall percentages were. So what, what did you find? So it, uh, it turns out that almost all quarterbacks' uh, distribution of targets are similar. They're all, oh, okay. group, they're all, they're all grouped around an ADOT uh, or a median number of uh, – uh, the, the median in, in, your, in, in your target distribution is right around eight or nine um, yards. And, and so, uh, you know, most of your, most of your throws are going to be in that range from, say – uh, five yards to 15 yards. Um, and Baker Mayfield's overall completion percentage lapped the field. And people wanted to say, well, it's because he threw so many short passes, which are completed more often. They were easy throws. We need to, you know, squash this narrative that he's actually accurate um, because um, there are harder throws. There are NFL caliber throws that aren't contained within that point estimate of his accuracy, which is overall completion percentage. Well, when you spread that thing out over all depth of target, it puts paid to that narrative, and it shows that, no, actually, at every part of the field, Baker Mayfield was better than anyone else. This seems like uh, an amazing – yeah, this seems like an amazing stat to me, which I must admit I, I watched a lot of coverage of the draft. Um, do you think that teams, maybe the Cleveland Browns, used depth-adjusted completion percentage, or have you seen teams actually use? Look at this as like I'll put, I'll put it this way on their cheat sheet about who, which quarterbacks to take in the draft. Is this a statistic that's becoming known, or what's your experience with that? Um, I have an anecdote about the NFL. I was told by, and I was trying to interview with some uh, some teams to try and show them some of this information. Uh, earlier this offseason and, and to try and get my hands on some of the player tracking data, talking to someone in the league office, and he told me an anecdote about something that happened at the Combine. They invited all the teams to bring forth uh, their best analysts, uh, and they were going to give a dog and pony show about um, uh, the new next-gen uh, player tracking data. And 11 people showed up, and three of the analysts were from the Patriots. So <laughs> to answer your question, I would say no. I would say no teams aren't looking at these type of data. I think teams are kind of myopically focused on maybe success rates, win probability on downs and distances. 
And I really think it kind of begins and ends there for them right now. And maybe Dean Oliver could, uh, could uh, maybe speak to so, that perhaps they're looking at, at new ways of looking at the data, but I don't think they're looking at that particular measure. So what you said actually is, is, is there are two things that there seem a little bit contradictory, um, not that you not that I deny their validity, but I'm wondering about whether the teams kind of get this. Because I asked about the, the – um, the distribution of short passes and long passes, and you essentially said that they're about the same, and yet then you turned around and said, well, Baker Mayfield, everyone observes he has a higher completion rate. As you said, he laps the field, but people just sloughed that off and said, oh, that's because he throws a lot of short passes, but that contradicts what you're saying is actually he doesn't throw any more short passes than anybody else. Do people not know that? I mean, that seems... Because I think within that distribution, you can have more passes bunched up to the shorter side, and it, it is a very steep. Uh, so, for instance, at uh, a depth of target of say four, three to four yards, the average completion percentage is in the 80s. Right at 10 yards, it drops all the way down to somewhere just above 60 percent. So, if your if your distribution, even though they're all relatively similar and all relatively grouped around these short passes, if it is skewed left, if it is skewed towards those those really short passes then it, it will uh, positively impact your overall completion percentage. And that was kind of the knock on Baker. Right. Well, Josh, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've been joined by Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh runs airyards.com, which provides data and metrics for NFL analysts. Um, you can follow Josh on Twitter at Frisco Josh. So, Josh, uh, thank you for joining us this morning on Morton Moneyball. I had a great time. Thanks, guys. Good. Great to have you. So, guys, this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We've got our over-under coming up after the break, and uh, I got a lot of stuff. I got hockey. I got soccer. I got all kinds of sports to talk about. So, fans, please join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Thanks to our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, an associate producer for, and I think you should stay, because this is Should I Stay or Should I Go? And I think everyone, all of our fans should stay for the last half hour here on Wharton Moneyball. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-hosts this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, professors of statistics. And if you want to join the conversation, um, if you want to join us on Over Under, uh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 it's been great. We had Dean Oliver this morning on to talk about basketball and analytics going on there. And, of course, we had Josh Hermsberger talking to us about NFL and all the stuff about yards after the catch. So two great guests, and we thank them this morning. So, guys, a couple things I wanted to throw out there this morning. Um, there are things that have happened in sports, but they also are statistics-related uh, questions. So, and But they both relate to hockey. But they're not specific hockey questions per se. So, um, as you guys know, the Golden Knights, uh, the expansion team, are in the finals. Yeah. Uh, they're playing the Washington Capitals. It uh, turns out, I didn't realize this. I knew, obviously, the Golden Knights had never won a Stanley Cup uh Stanley Cup. I'd never realized that Washington Capitals had never won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, and I mean, at least over the last, like, tw- um, you know, certainly while well, Ovechkin's been there over the last, like, 10, 15 years, they are the t- the best team that has never, never won, won the, the Stanley yeah, Cup. Yeah, that's right. So, the couple things I wanted to ask you. So, um, a stat that our producer Matt Datz put on our uh, prep sheet for today was the last six teams to win game one have won the Cup. Now, I wanted to say the following. It's, I'm not going to ask you how meaningful a stat that is. I mean, there's lots of stats you could look at, and that's the classic criticism. You can always cherry-pick a stat that shows something. I refer back, and I've referred to this on Morton Moneyball before. One of my favorite papers ever written and talks I've ever seen is by a statistician, George Casella. So what can we learn that the last six teams that have won the first game have won the Cup? 
We know it's not seven in a row, or the stat would say seven in a row. But actually, we probably know like nine out of ten might even be more impressive than six in a row. So he writes, writes this beautiful paper. I just love to hear your thoughts about it is when a s- announcer picks the most or somebody that feeds the announcer the most extreme stat, it must say something about the rest of the distribution yeah. you're not seeing. Because let's say it would have been 16 out of 17. Well, that's actually more impressive than six in a row. Then it's probably not that. So the point is, is that it's not probably uh, nine out of 10 or 11 out of, uh, out of 12. It's because they would have probably reported. six in a row, but only six out of nine or something but, like but that. That was yeah. my question yeah. to you. So in some sense. If this is the most extreme, I'm not saying it is, but if this is the most extreme, if we only look at yeah, winning first game, and this is the most extreme they can find, how should extreme we be less is impressed? Yes. Know, yeah. I, I'm less impressed only because I think the majority of those six that won are the better team winning the first game, and that's what it means. And so if I look at the odds, which might might give me some sense of the of the, the underlying or prior probabilities before you played any game, that matters to me more than the outcome of the first game. So I'll turn it to you guys. Who is the most favorite? Is it the Capitals? I would assume it is. No, what's the what's the no? What the, the Golden odds? Knights were actually favored in yep. this series. I they're believe favored in the series. They were, I believe, to start the, the expansion series. team. Yeah, I believe to start the series. Matt Dats, our producer, will correct me on the screen. I believe they were about plus one. Sorry, minus one thirty when it started. So they were slightly favored. Um, and I now believe it's gone to something like one eighty or two hundred yeah, or something guess. like that. All right, well, they're the favorite team. He's saying it's now minus 240. So they're actually now roughly a... So the the favorite team is is doing what the favorite team does. Yeah, though it wasn't favored by... Much. A Much. dramatic amount, but yes, that's right. That's what right. it also shows is, you know, I hate to say it, but it's also related to what Dean Oliver said. He goes, we all agree the Cavs are the underdog. And maybe we can degree on degree of significant underdog or not. But he basically said, can you imagine how the narrative would change? If they were to win game one. Yeah. In some sense, I think you guys would agree. I mean, well, Adi, if we're sitting here next, I know next Wednesday they'll have played more than one game. But let's even imagine you and I are talking Friday morning and the Cavs have won game one. And let's imagine right now they're a four to one underdog to, to win the finals. Might even be worse than that. The odds are going to swing so wildly that you will say as a statistician, I agree. I think you would say this. That's crazy. That they've swung so much, like they may yeah. go from four to one to I don't want to say the Cavs are favored, but they might be a forty-five percent chance if they were to win Game One, which you would agree is crazy, right? I would agree. I think. I mean, it's not even four. To, right now, it's about nine to one or somewhere yeah. between seven to one and nine to one that they win. And if they win the first so, game, it's going to swing a lot. That's, and I that think gives that's them wrong. a ten to fifteen percent chance yeah. to win the series. Let's. The odds might. We like to think of odds ratios. Yeah. The odds might triple. They if would. they win game one, and you're like, that's nuts. Well, this well, is, but it's, it's, it's nuts only in the sense that the starting odds you think are bad. Well, right? I, I'm not I mean, sure I do. I don't think they're bad. I mean, this is the, this is Dean Oliver. He suggested that they're not so great. Before I began this this conversation an hour and a half ago, I thought they were where they should be. I mean, it's not. I mean, what happens is we've seen the, the Warriors play the Cavaliers a few times now. And what has happened in these series is that the odds, in every case, the Warriors are the overwhelming favorite. And the odds have moved towards the Cavs because that's where a lot of the betting money wants to go. And Vegas has taken a position. They're not uh, squaring it up um, so that it goes half and half. They're recognizing that people are willing to take the Cavs without as much advantage as they should be ex- needing to accept them. And they're just letting it ride. Uh, so the so the year that the Cavs won, Vegas lost a fortune, an absolute you know something like three hundred fifty million dollars was lost because so many people bet the Cavs. 
and they and they and they and they won. Then of course they won it all back the next year because the same thing happened and people overbet the Cavs. The Cavs did not get the advantage that they that they should get it to make it a fair bet. All right, well let's let's and always. I think we're going to see this well, again. It's going to happen once again. Let's play the hypothetical out now. So I'll, I'll be the bank, and you guys are the betters. Okay, what odds would I have to give you for you to take the Cavs in the series? I would probably need. I actually, I think the opening line for Vegas about is about nine right. Or ten to nine, one. nine and ten to one is what I want. And so after you I heard Dean that. Oliver, I mean, I'm actually think that's a good bet. He actually thinks it's nobody's really forecasting them to win, which is why I need nine, nine or and, ten and, to and one. Shane, where are you at? Like, what odds do I need to give you for to, for you to bet the Cavs? I th- I think I would even take something like seven or seven to one. Wow, that's what it is? Yeah. You can make those wow. bets. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. I just think that's. I mean. Maybe I'm just way overestimating the Warriors in this series, or underestimating what the would Cavs. You take? Oh, for me to bet the Cavs, more than, you, you need I would more need than more. I would need more than ten to one to take the Cavs in this series. All right. I just, I just can't. I just there's so much depth of talent on the, on the Warriors. Warriors, okay, and it's not. But the one thing the Cavs have going for them, and, and it's been clear now. I love Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's not the best player in the NBA. No. People were talking no. like LeBron is the no, best player absolutely. in the NBA. And it's not James Harden. Can we answer? It's not James Harden, and it's not Steph Curry. It is LeBron. And it's not close. It's, it's not even close. Now, the thing is that could be interesting is that, and this is where an opportunity might come in, is that I would guess that the odds are going to move enormously if the Cavs win the first game. Well, that's what I just said. So that if, move enormously. So you might be able to cover your bet with an, and then have a, uh, if they win the first game, it's going to move. So that's where you might want to. You know, yeah. So, could you just tell our listeners here on Morton Moneyball what you're referring to about, like, in some sense, depending it, on the outcome, like bet now and then bet again to kind of. So it's cover almost that. like this exactly. So what that often happens, like, so for is that is that for, the Eagles were were a tremendous long shot to win the win the uh, the Super Bowl. And so if you made a, a bet at the very beginning of the season, it was paying like I think it was like fifty or or a hundred to one. Right. And the question is, you don't want to just toss that money. So at the at the end, you can you can you can potentially cover Hedge. it. And right. so what you're really doing is just you're just decreasing your variance. Now, a professional gambler doesn't necessarily want to do that. They decrease their variance by making lots and lots of bets, um, which is another way to decrease variance. They want to keep the expectation and as, as high as they, as they possibly can. But when you're an individual gambler, sometimes that's not necessarily the best thing to do. Yeah, some things I've done, I, look, I don't bet that much, but some things I've done lots of times, like if I pick like a parlay or something like an I pick, like these four teams have to win, and you're, in theory you should get 16 to 1. Let's say I'm getting 12 to 1. Let's say I've won the first three. Well, I'm going to guarantee myself some payout here, some positive payout by betting the opposite direction. That's what you're suggesting. There may be an opportunity to combo a bet on games one and two to actually increase your payout. Now, this is a question for you, Shane. I wrote this. I, I had this thought for you. I think both of these were both roughly 500 to one odds, and I want to know which one you think is more extraordinary. So the Golden Knights were, I think, yeah. 500 to one to win the Stanley Cup Finals this year. And let's imagine they win it. There was a recent five hundred to one thing in soccer. As you remember, Leicester, Leicester City. Yeah. Which of those two? Five thousand to one. Leicester City was five thousand to one. Oh, five thousand to one. Okay, five thousand. It was the most right, outrageous so thing you, ever. Leicester City. It's not even close. Like it's. It, I'm just saying. No. Right, so thank you for correcting yeah. me. I thought it was yeah. five hundred, but it was five thousand. Is Leicester City just so much more in your lifetime? You'll never see another Leicester City, or is the Golden Knights in your mind? It's. it's I mean, both are pretty extraordinary, but no, I, I think Leicester City was more extraordinary because this is a team that we had an actual track record of being bad that just sort of like yeah, went to I, the top, as opposed to this expansion team where. 
There's an assumption that that team's going to be bad because but they're basically consisting of cast-offs. Right. Um, but it, I, as we sort of talked about, there's some ways in which this extent, expansion draft was done that, you know, clearly clearly they weren't just... Uh, clearly they I, were, I mean, it's interesting. Hockey is something that I don't know that much about, but in, in, in EPA soccer, EPL soccer, English Premier League soccer, money is the overwhelming yeah. determination of who wins. you've yeah, told us about right. that predictor many times. Not. And so there's three teams, three, four teams that spend hundreds of times, not hundreds, but at least yeah. 10, 20 times what the lower teams spend. And it is incredibly predictive of total points. And I, Whereas I mean, hockey was, is more like there's more parity just encouraged by the system, the through system, salary yeah. cap. Well, and, and also like something, that. thanks to our producer Matt yeah. Datz, put something on the screen here. The other difference between the two is hockey is who wins the – we all know the regular season is meaningless. Who wins this short tournament? In English Premier League, it's who has the best season. season. Yeah. So, I mean, that might even make Leicester City's more unprobable. It's like, sure, anyone could get lucky in a game or two or three yeah. or four, but they had the best season. That's the yeah. part that makes it even more impressive. It wasn't yeah. just one short playoff. Well, you know, guys, this is the time of the show we all love, where we all have to put our predictions where our mouth is here on Wharton Moneyball, and that's our over-under segment. Let's begin. It's Wharton Moneyball's over-under. And as everyone knows that it listens to us on Morton Moneyball, uh, usually when uh, Cade Massey's in this seat, I run the over-under segment. But since I'm in this seat now today, um, I'm going to have my co-host and friend, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner, run our over-under segment. I will be happy to do it. Actually, we'll start off with one from last week. I'm going to – I hate to hate to rub it in, but we uh, last week uh, Eric and I discussed the length of the of the series when they both were at, at to five games. And uh, the question was how long they would go, and I predicted seven for both. Yes, you did. And, uh, and although it's interesting because I just – think there's an overabundance of seven games in, in in a lot of sports these, these they tend to go seven games much more frequently than you would by a chance model and i think with basketball in particular because of the home field kind of switches things around and that kind of forces things by to the way get just to remind up. everybody i thought the finals was different but it definitely isn't the finals is actually two two one 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 yep, they must have the switched it from two three two right. to two because it used to be in the yeah. you know the 80s celtics lakers two, three, two. days it used to be two three like two in baseball yeah it's now two two one one all right one. so that's my first over under uh 5.5 games in the NBA Finals. And we actually talked about this earlier, so just to re- so if we want to go with you, you, you can change it I'll up. I'll stay consistent and go over. So you're going over? I've got to be, well, I've got to be gotta consistent. Get, I'm going on All right, well, I'm going over because my forecast was six games. But, but let me just say, so, by the way, I really hope it's over. Of course. I really hope yeah. it's over. But I, I'm going under. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, terrific. All right, so let's stick with basketball for, for one, so one question. So one of the questions that's kind of complicated is how many uh, points are, are each player worth to the point spread? So you're saying if that player couldn't play, that's how much? Right. so let's say right now, by the way, the point spreads 12 and a half. So right. let's play that hypothetical out, okay? Which is hard. To, it's just a funny a funny over-under because it's really hard to to verify. It's really just a more hypothetical over-under to see how see kind of what we think Unless, about the relative value. Unless, of course, values. somebody gets injured Unless between now and then. Gets injured. Yes. So, uh, so the over-under is 6.5 for LeBron. So let me just make sure our listeners understand. So the spread is 12 and a half now, roughly. It would be 19, you're saying, if LeBron didn't play. Yeah. Um, yep. All right. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right, so Shane jumps in immediately. Yep. Over. The only hesitancy I have is not that LeBron isn't worth six and a half points. Is that that's different conceptual question than saying, what would I bet on? Because of the following. You know, the cap, the Warriors could be up 25 points with three minutes left. And then you and I are in the game. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's just tales of the distribution. They tend to regress backwards near the end of the game because the team that's down puts in a little bit of effort. The team that's winning puts in no effort. 
I just nineteen points in an NBA well, game. Well, I mean, the trouble with this one is that it's it's it, it's it's pin, pinned to this twelve point spread that we may or may not agree with. Already, that's already a really high spread. That's a, that's why that's an that's enormous right. spread. So you can imagine. Actually, that's, let me just break, let me build on Shane's point, which is an excellent. I one. mean, against an average team, half, if the point spread right. was zero, we obviously oh. and, and you take out LeBron, obviously that jumps it by <laughs> no, more no, than that's six why and a half. I yeah. like I like your revision to the question, which is I don't like six and a half at twelve and a half. Yeah, but I, it, to me, it's an underestimate if it yeah. was at zero. How yeah. about that? Yeah. I love yeah. your revision of that question. I kind of agree. Although I would say, I mean, I don't think I don't think it's going to go to nineteen. Yeah, if he comes out. But uh, but it would if it were zero. I mean, yeah. I think in a different, well, in a different that game. Point, so that's which what that's is excellent, excellent. Now we can't point. actually verify this, so we'll, we'll just move on. Well, we, one question, of course, is just to sort of compare to say to Durant. If he goes out, what would it be? Over under three. I don't know because you know I've always said the thing about uh, well to me it would be more Kevin. I know it's going to sound strange. It would be more Kevin Durant on the defensive end of the ball because there is only one basketball to be shot. I'm pretty sure I'm making I'm not making this up. I'm pretty sure Steph Curry and uh, Clay Thompson wouldn't mind jacking up more shots than they're currently getting. Um, I'm not sure that their offense would suffer as much if Durant was out. Right. Um, I think their defense might suffer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say three points is about right. I don't yeah. think that. Yeah, it's about right. So we basically think Durant is about half of, of yeah. Uh, I mean, I, of LeBron's that's, value. That's, yeah, assuming we agree with that six and a half for uh, yeah. No, I think that's about right. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I would go. I think that's right on. I guess. I guess we have to do an over-under. Um, I'm going to go, I think his value is over three. Right. Well, I would go under. Okay. That's fine. All right, it's a terrific team. But we, we'll never really settle that, of course, unless he actually goes down and we don't necessarily want to see that one happen. Let's finish one more basketball that's one that we can actually evaluate within the length of the entire series, which is this. 1.5 games in the series that LeBron is not the leading scorer for the game. Do you mean both teams? That's what it reads. One point five games. LeBron is not the leading scorer for the game. Um, uh, Shane, why don't you go first this time? I'll go under. I think he's the leading scorer for the game for every game except for maybe one. So that's what you're saying. Oh, it's not the leading scorer. Yeah. So, um, I mean, remember because the I Warriors, understand. The Warriors have, split, right? So yeah. they have more than one player. They don't tend to get one player with tremendous numbers of points. And LeBron just will probably have 35 every game. I don't know. I, you know, I'm just I'm worried about the game. He only has 25 points, 20 rebounds, and 15 assists. Yeah. Um, and he'll still probably be the leading <laughs> scorer. No, he wouldn't be. the. I don't think at 25 he would be the leading scorer. I think he needs to get to. I'm going to go. I think there will be in this series. I'm going under. Under as well. You're going yeah. under, you're going under. I'm actually going to, hmm. Wow, it's you, tough. Got me. It's, that 1.5 is right on the knife it's edge. It's right on the knife I edge. I think there could be one game. Thank you, Matt, for the knife edge. That's what we always want. Oh, wow. Because um, it just takes one game where, you know, it, it, like Clay Thompson could hit 10 threes in a game. Durant could get hot and drops yeah. in 39. LeBron drops in 35. No, I agree. It's a well-calibrated. It's a well-calibrated. You know what? Just for fun, I will go over, even though my gut is telling me under. Well, I'm going to go over. All right, now let's move to baseball. All right. All right. So we, let's just uh, let's just circle back into some of the questions we talked about earlier in the show. Verlander is having an, an epic year um, as a as a first third. If we continued it to the end, it would be potentially the greatest season of any any uh, pitcher. I doubt that'll happen. So let's make a forecast: one half an ERA point between Verlander and the next best ERA over under. Wow! Just so I understand, 
I, I thought this is this data correct? He I know he's at one point one one. Yeah. Is it true that the next closest is at two point oh five? Because I thought there was someone at one point seven something. Maybe it was a reliever or something like that. Yeah, we're talking starters. So All right, but a, let's imagine he's got a point nine advantage now. Um I'm going we see that you're, you're I'm going I, I, under. Under. So you don't think he will end up being a whole half an ERA point better than the next? No, because – and by the way, not because necessarily I think the second-place person is going to get worse. I just don't think he can sustain 1.11. Yeah. Yeah. I think he'll end up in the – I'm not even – Two. Well, what, what, what I would I go s- for two. In fact, I'm going th- to jump I- ahead of you, and I'm going to say I'm going to go under on that one. But what do you think are the odds that he ends up under two? Less than a third. Less than a less third. Th- I mean, listen, he, let's look last year. He wasn't as great as that this year. I, all it takes is a blow-up. All, all you need is one, one game. game where you get just rocked. I mean, one or two games. Yeah. It's not impossible. Um, and then that, you know, you, you, pitchers are notoriously well, uh, I, volatile. Before we go to Shane on that, I like the math that you're doing because let's even imagine he has one game where he pitches three innings and gives up six runs. Yeah. So it's not impossible that that could happen. You start to do the math on, all right, so how many games would it take to make up for that one game of three innings and six runs? And you're like, he's going to have to have like ten starts of like under like one. Yep. Well, that's what he's had, how, by the how way. How many innings does he have to pitch to sort of qualify for the ERA Oh, title. it's a percentage. It, it's about it's around 180. I was going to guess yeah. 180, yeah. 175, 180. All right, because, I mean, you know, the, the other factor in this is he is an older player and could definitely get injured. And then, you know, may, 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 he, I mean, I, almost ideally for Verlander, as far as this stat's concerned, is that he would just hit that innings total and then, you know. Walk away? Walk no, away yeah. no, I think like it's, it's actually it's actually one sixty two. Oh, one sixty two. It's one inning per game. Is right. the average. You have to average. Okay. But that's that's I think to qualify for the for yeah. the for the ERA. It has happened by the way that long relievers, combination starter relievers have made it. Yeah. Uh, but we don't see relievers pitching nearly that many innings. But this anymore. is certainly I think we would agree. This is even for a, a third of the way through the season. This is the lowest ERA I can remember yeah. ever. One third of the way through a season. Yep. One third, you know, I don't. I, a lot of funny things happen in the beginning of the season. There was a, a half of a season where Rod Carew hit five hundred. He was not at five hundred halfway through the season. It was nearly close to it. It was at five hundred. It was absurd. <laughs> no, he was well over four hundred, but he wasn't at five hundred. I think about a third of the season he was at five hundred. Oh, oh, yeah. It was a, it wasn't a small amount, it was a large chunk of the season. I think he had two hundred at bats and one hundred hits. It was absurd. This <laughs> <laughs> is from our was that the season he ended up at in three eighty eight. Three eighty eight, yeah. Okay. That was the season. Which yeah. I mean regression to the mean is something we all have to, to incorporate. He regressed in all the way down to three eighty eight. Yeah, yeah, all the way down. All right, here's a tough one. This is I think is a hard one. Two point five combined division wins among Nationals, Cubs, Astros, and Dodgers. So just to th- let's just forecast out mm-hmm. what is currently happening. Um, it's in- the Cubs are second, the Dodgers are third, the Nationals are second, and the Astros are in first. But let's be clear. The, the Nationals are essentially tied. The Cubs are, I don't know how far back. The Cubs Three are, and a half games back right yeah. now. And the right. Dodgers are, despite them being awful, aren't that far now, back all, either. All four of them were predicted to win yeah. their divisions. So 2.5, what right. do you think? I'm going over. I'm going over as well. For I, winning. All right, I'm going to sure go under. Yeah, I think the Nationals and Astros are, I mean, they're not locks, but the, I think those are highly probable to yeah, win their I mean, division. The Phillies and Braves, you're just saying, won't be able to sustain um, it. And then you just need one of the Cubs and Dodgers to do right. it. Right. Well, I'm I'm writing off the Dodgers for winning. I mean, I'm not writing them off, but I'm, I think it's a good right on the. I think it's a good yeah. on the knife's edge. Um, uh, producer Matt Dats, yep. very good call. And but I'm going to go under on it as okay. well. 
So how much time we got here? We got, we got about a minute left. You got a minute left. You got time for one more. One more. Um, so it's uh, so in hockey. Five, well, actually, I want one that we can we can we can evaluate by the end of the season. One point seven five WAR differ, differential between Mike Trout and number two by the end of the season. Now this is of course an awkward thing because Baseball Reference is very different from FanGraphs. So I'll yeah, let you. I don't think. I think. Uh... Like one of the sort of Mookie Betts or, or Aaron Judge or whatever stays close enough to Mike Trout that he is not one point five, one point seven five right, more above. So you're saying, I agree. So I'm, going under, well. I'm going under yeah. as well. I'm actually going to split the difference. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to say Baseball Reference WAR will have him at over, but the others will have him b- lower oh. at under. And Just that's because, because Baseball, Baseball Reference kind of over evaluates, over evaluates, over and none of them, feeling. both of them are completely opaque. We none of them are open. War. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adi, thanks for running our over-under segment. And again, if you want to join us for the over-under segment, always you can join us here on Wharton Moneyball. And our producer, Matt Datz, also tweets about our over-under segment. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball this morning. On behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, my co-host, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. There will be some combination of us here live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, and especially, go Cavs. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.